Welcome to the last Wednesday of the week, the multi-tool of sports podcasts, where we bring you highlights of the week in sport, we bring interviews, and we bring some meaty topics. On this week's show, we are bringing you the very first interview of season three. We're joined by one, the one and only Andrew Benson, BBC's chief Formula One sports writer. And to help Ben and me get on with this task, we've roped in friend of the show and F1 aficionado, Paul. On with the show. Excellent, excellent. So our guest tonight is an incredibly experienced sports writer and journalist specialising in our favourite sport, Formula One. Uh, He's covered a huge amount, including what I would personally call three pretty distinct periods in the sport. The fast Scuderia Ferrari of the early noughties, uh, the Red Bull of the early tens, and the last eight years of Mercedes AMG Petronas domination in the <laughs> hybrid turbo era. Uh, he's been with the BBC for over two decades, spending the latter half of that as the BBC's chief Formula One sports writer. And all of this off uh, writing experience off the back of a history degree out of Sheffield. Uh, welcome, Andrew Benson. Thank you for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Uh, this is, I would imagine, the only period of the year when you aren't traveling to countries across the globe. I would ask if it's a relaxing time, but it feels like a wild off-season. Can can you remember a more politically or emotionally charged off-season? Um, not, not professionally, I don't think. Uh, it has been pretty intense. Obviously, the fallout from Abu Dhabi carried on for the week after that. Um, okay, there was Christmas and the uh, FIA seemed to have certainly been on holiday during that period. Um, and, uh, but then since we came back from Christmas, it's been pretty full on. And now it's just like a sort of avalanche of car launches and bits of news here and there. Uh, it was Williams today. Um, it's Ferrari tomorrow, Mercedes on Friday. And um, actually, people say, oh, what do you do in the winter? It never actually really stops. But this does seem to have been a particularly intense period. Yeah, it's been busy for all of us. I think Twitter's just so alive at the moment with everyone uh, really polarised, either Hamilton and Verstappen. I'm sure we'll get on to that. But if you could give us a brief idea, Andrew, of, of uh, how, how you became a, a sports writer, a brief introduction into your uh, your career, if that's okay. Well, I went to Sheffield University, as you say. Um, and uh, while I was there, I was working on the student union newspaper and uh, I hadn't thought about what I was going to do for a career and um, then one of my friends said well you know you like Formula One and you can write and you seem to like um, the newspaper so why don't you become a Formula One journalist and I don't know why I'd never thought of it before but I hadn't anyway I wrote a couple of articles on spec for Autosport magazine they published one of them um and when I left university, um, after I'd been traveling for a bit, um, there was an Autosport advert for editorial assistant, uh, fortunately, within a few weeks. And um, I applied and I got the job. And um, I sort of worked my way quickly up through being assistant news editor and news editor. Then I became Formula One um, Grand Prix editor, they call it, actually, at Autosport uh, in 1996 although I'd kind of been working on Formula One um, from 1994 onwards, um, particularly following Senna's death. So I did five seasons with Autosport, left to join the BBC, was thinking I would leave Formula One behind at that point, um, 
but I I was kind of the only person who had the phone numbers of half the paddock in the BBC pretty much. So I couldn't get away. And then we got the rights back, uh, the TV rights that is, and uh, they asked me to go back onto it full time. And uh, I was um, I was a, a sort of editor for a while uh, back at the office, mainly or going to or going to a few races a year at that point, sort of for the first couple of years of having the rights contract and. Um, um, and then I went back full time. And I should say that when I was at Autosport, I was also writing for The Guardian. And um, when I was when I first went to the BBC, I um, kind of was a desk editor covering across all sports. And I've written about all kinds of things, whether it be football or cycling or rugby or cricket or whatever. So um, that's it in a nutshell. Thanks for that. And um, it, it sounds like then, and, and certainly before we started recording, you mentioned about watching football tonight. You're a sports fan, I take it. If you, you know, being able to write about all these things suggests that you, you're into many sports. Is that would that be fair to say? I like all world class sports. Uh, my, okay. uh, my my patience with the levels below that isn't always <laughs> as big as it ought to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when it's properly high quality, yeah, I'll, okay. I'll watch most things. Yeah. And what would you put your hand to if you had to put the pen down and pick up a what? Um, my athletic ability is limited. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wasn't a bad swimmer when I was younger okay. and um, uh, I dabbled in tennis a bit and now I like cycling. Um, okay. I'm no good at it. My legs are too short. Fair enough. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, we're going to get into various things across, um, you know, within Formula One as a journalist, but also, you know, as a fan and the experience and things like that. But um, if you could give us a sort of a sense, what's what's a typical weekend look like for you? If there's such a thing, a Formula One event, you know, do you get there on the Wednesday or the Tuesday or what are you doing on the Thursday, the Friday? And, you know, just sort of like walk us through sort of the key moments for you. Obviously, you've got the the, the track sessions but what are you doing in between are you sort of just having coffee mingling networking <laughs> definitely well, it's, it's got it's to be actually, coffee right <laughs> yeah there's a lot of coffee involved that is for sure yeah um but so it's actually hard to give you an answer as to what it's going to look like this year because they've as you may know they've changed the format of the weekends and they're they've tried to make it a three-day weekend the idea being to have less traveling for the have the teams have less time away basically because the calendar's yeah. got so long now um but I, it's, it's a bit of a halfway house and i'm not completely convinced it's going to work and the drivers are still going to be there on thursday afternoon doing engineering and track walks and stuff so yeah it doesn't sound like a three-day weekend to me anyway so until this year um so it depends when you flew out would depend on where you were going because obviously it takes a foot, takes a bit longer to get to Singapore, for example, than it does yeah, to yeah. get to Barcelona. Um, but um, and I and not everybody who's a journalist does it the same way. Some people arrive a bit earlier, some people leave a bit later um, after the race. Um, but so let's just take the actual four days of working yeah. for the weekend. So you'd get to the track uh, sort of mid morning on Thursday, um, be working, doing press conferences. Uh, all that day uh, until about six or seven o'clock. Um, then you might get sort of an evening away, um, have a meal with your mates or something. Then uh, at the track for eight, eight, nine o'clock the following morning, depending on when practice started, then you're there for a sort of 11 hours or so, probably working. Um, two sessions of practice, obviously, uh, 
uh, bit of data analysis, wandering around, talking to people, trying to find out what's going on, which of course you're doing on a Thursday as well. Uh, might get back to the hotel sort of 8.30, 9-ish, something like that. Um, then Saturday, same again, another close to 12-hour day. Uh, maybe a bit longer, depending on what's gone on in qualifying. If someone's, you know, if there's been a some issue with the rules or whatever, then that would delay things. Quite often, you might not leave the track till later. Then might sometimes could go to like 9, 10 o'clock um, on the Abu Dhabi when... Um, I think there was an issue with Vettel and fuel a few years ago, and um, that was a late one. Um, yeah. And then um, same on the Sunday, you'd get there. Okay, the race doesn't start till two or three o'clock, but you'd probably be at the track by nine in the morning because there's plenty of work to do in the morning. You've got to go talk to people. It's all about talking to people. It's yeah. all about if you want to know what's going on, you can't just sit in the media center and just listen to the press conferences, although some, some people yeah. do do that. Um, if you want to know, you, you have to get out there talk meet your contacts and then go from one to another yeah so um, i mean i think sorry andrew yeah just say on on that contacts i know paul we're gonna get into some questions about those relationships you know all, th- all things being equal if i was an experienced media writer and then jumped into formula one you and i turning up to a track couldn't get the same stories could we because the networks no. you build the friendships you have and you mentioned you know going for dinner with your mates and that kind of thing you obviously built this network paul do you want you've got some questions around that for us yeah, I was just interested to know whether you all had sort of a big click or, or whether there were, you know, BBC hangout with BBC and Sky hangout with Sky. Is it, are you not really allowed to sort of officially mingle with the, the other networks for, for fear of maybe them getting the jump on a story or something? Or or do you just have a great relationship with all of the different types of um Cover, cover people that are there i mean i'm, I'm not saying a well, great relationship but you must have uh friendships within your your traveling buddies that you 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 see regularly or someone you sit next to on the plane you know do you want to be next to doris or would you rather be next to dave you know yeah sure so um well i mean the the competition aspect of it that you talk about is not really an issue on the social side because if you don't want to talk about a story that you think you're building up you don't talk about it so that's easy and you've got you can have mates from anywhere you know uh, sometimes in the teams if sometimes if you're lucky even a driver um certainly among the other journalists um of course not everybody gets on with everybody else it's impossible for more just a little microcosm of the wider world and so there are going to be people you don't like and there are going to be people you do like um and that you'll your, people tend not to travel together necessarily because everybody lives in a different place. But once you're at the track, you might try and organize to stay in the same hotel as people that you get on with. You'd certainly go out to dinner with people you get on with. You might you sit next to certain people in the media center rather than somebody else. Because obviously it's just, just more fun, isn't it? To sit next yeah, to somebody you like rather than somebody you're trying to ignore. So <laughs> um, it's, it's pretty casual, but, and, and relaxed. Um, and uh, in terms of the TV radio side of things, um, the, it, it doesn't really matter. I've got friends at Sky and I've got friends at the BBC. I've got friends for in uh, foreign media organisations. And, um, and yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, 20 years, I imagine really you, nice you have cosmic. made some great friends. Uh, I'm, I'm very lucky that I bumped into a, a, a journalist, uh, a, a Formula One writer called Maurice Hamilton, um, when I worked at a, at a pub and he was he was living in the area and he's written some amazing books and I'm sure that 
um, I'm sure that some of the other writers you 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 look at and you read their stuff and you think, wow. I mean, do you aspire to? Was there anyone you you aspired to be more like, or when you write, do you write in a way that is purely your own, or do you feel like maybe you've grabbed bits from other writers as you've gone along? Well, um, there's a lots of questions in one there. Goodness there me! Is, um, uh, in, in terms of writing, I, you can only be yourself, but you can have targets, and I, I always try to, I target clarity. And, and I try to keep things as straightforward as possible. Um, uh, and it, a lot of it's feel um, as well. Um, and so um, wh- actually it's funny you should mention Morris Hamilton because when I was younger and wondering what I was going to do and how do you get into Formula One, how do you become a Formula One journalist, I wrote to Morris and um, he wrote back, which was very kind of him. And um now He's a nice guy. We're friends. Yeah, um, he certainly is. Um, and I guess when I was growing up, the person I looked up to most um, as a Formula One writer was Nigel Roebuck, um, who's a good mate of Morris's. And I worked with Nigel at um, uh, at Autosport for a few years, obviously. And um, he, Nigel, is a wonderful writer. Um, and um, so, you know. I wouldn't say I aspired to write like him, but, you know, I'm sure I've taken things from him because I've been reading him from, a, you know, since I was 12, 13 years old. Now, the sports writer I admire most is Richard Williams from The Guardian, who I think is just, he's just a class apart. Um, and he's, a, as well as that, he, I mean, he knows something about everything. He's a real um, uh, polymath. And he's also... a really 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 nice bloke um which um is great and uh, i'm lucky enough to be friends with richard too and uh, if i if i would recommend anybody to read any book about formula one it would be richard's um death of and center it is interesting you sort of talk about um you know these these kind of writing idols because funnily enough you're one of mine and, and and you have to look at idols and and sort of emulate and um one of the big ones uh, you know talking about the the journalism is is objectivity and you mentioned there is is just just basically relaying the facts and now obviously we're at an incredibly sort of polarized time in in uh, formula 1 is it in- increasingly difficult to stay um, I don't want to say on the fence because that's not right, but stay uh, with, with keep the clarity um, without imparting any opinion if that's possible. Well, um, it's an interesting question um, because uh, it's the, there's nothing wrong with expressing opinion, of course, but your your primary role is to, as you say, to tell people what's going on, um, and it shouldn't be about as, as far as I'm concerned. You you you're, you shouldn't really be in the way. That's the way I look at the, the job is to it, the reader shouldn't really know that you're there. If you see what I mean, you're just a conduit between what they're interested in and them. And um, the, sometimes there, there's a, there might be a reason why you would insert yourself in the story, but, but by and large, I think it's best to not be, to be out of it, to be, to be, to keep yourself as far from it as possible. Um, because it's not about you. It's about, what you're writing about um so that's that's the sort of the, the short version of the answer to that question i think 
No, and that's good. Uh, with the social media, though, do you have to have a, a more of a face, more of a personality, or can you uh, use the BBC as that face and personality? Well, so the, my Twitter account is a BBC Twitter account. It's very clear. It says that on my biography on Twitter. Um, and so I am representing the BBC on Twitter as I am representing the BBC now and as I am representing them in everything that I do. Um, so it's extremely important that I follow all the editorial guidelines uh, that, that the BBC has. Um, so I, I cannot get involved in uh, any kind of partiality um, on social media. Yeah, yeah and that's, well, that's becoming now. increasingly uh, important, isn't it? Social media, particularly within the narrative of Formula One. And I, um, I was reflecting yesterday on if someone was new to Formula One today and they were to watch, say, the Senna film, for example, they would notice that there are heroes and villains within Formula One then as as there are now. But now it's it's more visible. We've got Drive to Survive. We've got Formula One trying to you know push all the, the social media side of stuff. And then there's the fans on social media and there's some... Well, there's some really nasty stuff as well as just general opinions and, and good good debate and good challenge as well. Has what if any impact has had that on you as a reporter um perhaps uh, i'll leave you with two, two potentially open questions one is either in your writing are you writing with that in mind with a, a new audience or a different or an emerging audience and secondly um as someone that may be on the receiving end of anyone sort of saying well you know you might you're i think this is your opinion rather than you know that they may not feel you've got out of the way rightly or wrongly but um how do you feel uh, or do you sort of cast that kind of conversation aside and not try not to take stuff too personally? Is that something you've kind of had to build up as you write about something that people are becoming increasingly or seemingly increasingly polarised about? Well, it's it's funny. I mean, uh, earlier today I mentioned that uh, I was talking, uh, it was the Williams launch and Nicholas Latifi was, we had a press conference with Nicholas Latifi and he was talking about the death threats that he got after yeah. the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And he felt that he'd needed extra security when he went, believe it or not, to Winter Wonderland with his uh, girlfriend after, in the so week bad. after that race. Um, uh, I've, I've never felt, I've never felt as exposed as that. Um, but it's certainly true that I've, you know, I've been, some pretty nasty stuff's been directed at me. And um, you, because the problem is that the, most people on, social media are biased right that's fine you know mm. they've some of them are hamilton fans some of them are verstappen fans or vettel fans or whatever um and the problem with people who are fans of a certain driver or club or team or whatever is that they tend to see things through those eyes so they th if you're say, if you say something even if it's completely factual that doesn't fit with their worldview they tend to have a problem with it. Um, and that's where the two worlds collide, journalism yeah. and the social media audience. They, It seems to me the people who get most exercised on social media aren't as able to um, see clearly that it's them that's biased, not you, rather than the other way around. And that's where the problems start. And... Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, the BBC wants me to be on social media and I, I engage with um, the audience um, when I feel it, it, when I feel I should. Yeah. And, um, but I'm doing it as a, 
as a BBC journalist, I'm trying to help people understand what's um, what's going on. And so if someone asks me a question and I know the answer, I'll, I'll probably answer it. But I'll only go so far because if if someone wants something cleared up, for example, if they're confused about something, you know, and you explain what what's going on. Again, some people don't like the answer and they... there's only so many times you can go back and say well actually it is that because of this this this, that and the other and then get that batted back at you before you just go okay fine you know you think what you want but i've told you what i what i think is the truth and uh and we're just gonna have to leave it there there was no way, obviously, when you were writing for Autosport, there was no way for people to respond so quickly. Um, the moment you, you've put a, a story up, uh, I think yesterday was about the FIA meeting, um, whether it was a meeting at all, who knows? Uh, but yeah, they uh, it's instantaneous. People are there saying, oh, I don't agree with this, I don't agree with this. Have you have you, is, is it, have you felt your yourself build up a thicker skin over, over this time because of that? Because there was no way you could have maybe expected that working at Autosport. Social media is this this beast or un- noble beast that, that just seems to be getting out of control at times um I, I don't know whether it's a thicker skin now um i've got a thicker skin now than i did have before i became a journalist um that's all the cycling as soon as you become a journalist <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah um, when you become a journalist you learn very quickly that you need to develop a thicker skin and that if you didn't have one before which i didn't um because as i said to you ben in the speak in the talk that we did uh, at solent university a, a few weeks ago um not everyone's gonna like what you say um or what you write and you just have to accept that um and the sooner you get that into your head the, the happier you're going to be as a journalist um so it, it, social media has it it's it's just a different form of you know reaction to what you do is ultimately i mean ultimately um the, the thick skin the, the thickness of the skin is required whichever form of reaction you get whether it's from the public or whether it's from people who you might be writing about who maybe didn't want that bit that you've written to be to be public at that point for example. Yeah, but before we sort of move on maybe to more questions about Formula One, I mean, it's a sport that we're all absolutely in love with. Um, I just want to quickly, one final question maybe on the journalism side. Sky are such a big, you say that the biggest sponsor in Formula One. Um, Do you feel that they get first dibs, you know, for want of a better saying, uh, given their sort of intense relationship with stories or are the contacts that you've built up over the last two decades good enough to set you apart? Uh, because you mentioned where when we last spoke that the the BBC, especially around the Abu Dhabi race, was uh, the most looked at, the most clicked on, uh, the the biggest um, delivery of, of Formula One content in the world. Right? No, that's not what I said. What I said was that the um, the the Abu Dhabi day um, of the race was the single biggest piece of BBC content across uh, the entirety yeah. of BBC online um, for the for all of the month of December. Incredible. Um, which was, it was a way of explaining to you guys in that room um, what the sort of the level of the impact that Abu Dhabi had made on the, on the public. Um, the Sky question, um, 
look, Sky are the TV rights holders and they pay Formula One an awful lot of money over the term, the term of their contract. I think it's £1.2 billion. Pounds. Um, and uh, so they get really great access in terms of, you know, if they want someone to appear on their TV show, they get them. And um, I, we don't get the same level of access as them on that point, but then we don't have a TV camera in the in the yeah, paddock, yeah. you know. Um, we and we certainly did get really great access when uh, we were the TV rights holders, and um, we've, um, we're very fortunate at the BBC that the teams value our coverage, and um, all, I, all the teams are very very helpful. Um, uh, generally, um, when I'm looking for sort of formal access in terms of, um, um, you know, interviews and what have you. Um, uh, and in terms of stories, which is a slightly different thing, uh, Ben, um, I think we do okay. <laughs> I think so too. Well, and, and, and you certainly had a run of very long days in December then, didn't you, putting all that content together? Did you have to was it down you know as a chief f1 writer for for bbc was that a lot of that down to you to try and coordinate that amongst others did were you having to work with other people did the, the team you immediately work with expand as a result of that um i don't want to dwell on this for ages because we want to get some of the stuff just interested in the mechanics of how you had to sort of spin up to be able to produce that much content um, the week after abu dhabi you mean yeah okay so it's my job to get the stories and write them and then, yeah. it's to, then i send them I talked to the office uh, in Salford, uh, at BBC Media City, and they um, they produced them, which which effectively, you know, in the ten, in the the BBC Sport website terms means put them into our content production system, put pictures on them, headlines, and what have you, um, and while you know producing on radio or TV means something else that I would be involved in, but it, my relationship with radio or TV would be the same. Again, yeah. I, I get, I find, I do the story, and someone else produces it. Basically, yeah, it's quite a straightforward organisation. Yeah, the, yeah. Staff, the staff numbers aren't anywhere near as big as people would imagine. It's not some huge monolithic organisation. There's not that many people <laughs> yeah. working um, on it. It's pretty lean. Um, you'll be pleased to know you license fee payers. It's a pretty lean organisation. <laughs> no, it's a bargain. Um, it's a bargain. <laughs> Absolute bargain. bargain. <laughs> Um, all right, we want to. Uh, we, we talked about some of the, the potentially negative sides of, of the, the environment within which you operate. Let's let's dwell for a moment on some of the highlights from your career, if we can. Um, we want to sort of, if we can, hark back to a few areas you've co- areas. You, <clears throat> easy for me to say eras, even that you've been uh, part of Formula One for. Um, Paul, we'll hand over to you. You want to you want to pick up on a, a couple of things here. Well, I've been a Williams fan since I can remember. I think. My dad was a huge F1 fan and I think it was like 1984 or something when we started watching together on the TV and the iconic moments that I remember usually come back to either a Williams car or a McLaren car, Um, blue and white and yellow and red and white and some of the most amazing drivers that that we've seen on the grid and I just wondered if there was a particular team that you were drawn to because, as you said, you were a, you know, you're an F1 fan when when you became a writer. Whether you looked towards people on the in the paddock as kind of 
your favoured ones? And I know that you were saying that you have to be impartial, but you must have, like all people do, you must have had a favourite in, in it, uh, that you looked towards and went, yeah, that's the team. Did, did you ever have that sort of, that that team? Well, not Williams. since I became a journalist. No, of course. Not since, I, no, it's not, you, you can't. It, yeah. it would be completely wrong to um, behave in that way or think in that way. Um, you have to treat everybody equally. And um, of course, there are going to be people at some teams that you get on with um, and people at some teams that you don't get on with as well. Um, you'd obviously, um, that, that's just human nature. Um, and you will have dotted around the paddock sources of information, you know, people who tell you the stuff that, that goes in the stories that people read uh, that, that, isn't, that hasn't come out in an official statement, those sorts of people. Um, but you can't allow those um, what might be a warmer relationship or whatever to influence your reporting. Well, in terms of in terms, of, it does influence it in the terms of they give you facts and information, but you can't allow it to colour your um, your treatment of one team over another. It would be completely unacceptable professionally to allow that to happen. Um, so let's just get that out of the way straight away. Yeah, um, understood. Um, I didn't realise my question was so intense. I just really liked the Williams. <laughs> I wondered if maybe you had a favourite car, maybe or a favourite livery, or you know the. So, well, when I was a kid, I so what attracted me to Formula One first was um, I came back from a family holiday, turned on the telly, and uh, there was this lunatic in a red car driving around in th- on three wheels. And um, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Um, and I've also dated myself a bit there. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> you guys weren't probably born by when I came back from that family holiday and saw Gilles Villeneuve at the 1979 Dutch Grand Prix. Um, that's what attracted me first to Formula One. And because of that, I was a Gilles Villeneuve fan when I was a kid. We're talking like 9, 10, 11, 12. Um, and, uh, and a Ferrari fan as a consequence. And then he got killed um, and I grew up. And, um, you know, it, I, I've never been really, I've not, I've, I'm not one to follow teams or drivers because of their nationality i just i am more interested in their um their skill level their abilities their character or whatever um so i've you know until i became a reporter i was sort of led by that and uh, a bit like um i was saying earlier about all i like all top level sport i'm obviously most interested in the highest level drivers i still am um and obviously because i have to focus there's only one of me um uh doing the mostly so there's only one me writing for the bbc at a grand prix for sure so and i there's and so i can't be everywhere all at once so i have to focus my attention more on lewis hamilton than i do on um roman grosjean when he was around for example sure um but that's just the nature of the work that's not because um I more biased towards Lewis Hamilton than I would be towards Grosjean. You know, it's just mm. it's just a fact of life. I think uh, picking up on on Lewis Hamilton, it's worth asking. I think in ten twenty years, we'll look back and see the impact that Lewis Hamilton has had on Formula One will will transcend the seven, eight, nine. How many titles it might finish on? Um, 
what and obviously we, we we all hope um i think we can all say we hope he is he is back and healthy next month um what he he's a sort of mercurial talent one of the greatest if not the greatest driver of all time what is he like what is his demeanor like uh when you're at press conferences is he happy to talk with uh, yourself and other journalists um is he is he the sort of incredible stand-up guy that we see on television uh, every weekend? He's hard to get close to. Is Hamilton? Um, I you know I don't think I'm giving away any secrets when I say that no Formula One driver really would choose to do interviews, you know, or press conferences, particularly or the TV scrum for example, where they go around and talk to one TV crew after another for a couple of minutes and all the questions are pretty much the same because they're going to be, right? Because the race has just happened and it's yeah. pretty obvious what you're going to ask. For the drivers, that's a chore. And I think for the dri- most of the drivers, most interviews are a chore. Uh, Hamilton's got um, a status, obviously. Um, he's a far bigger status than anybody else in Formula One. And he's... All, he's keeps himself apart from people. Um, but I think um, uh, someone said to me once, he means well. And um, I think he's, you know, he's a fundamentally good human being, um, even if he's a polarizing character. Um, and um, I don't think, no journalist could tell you that they knew Lewis Hamilton well um i wrote a column for him for three years for the bbc and i certainly don't know him well um even though i would talk to him for that column every single race weekend um just me and him for 15 minutes or whatever it was uh, for three years um um but um he's a fascinating character and um he's had his ups and downs through his career obviously but by and large, he's very professional, very thoughtful, um, and he and he tries to engage, you know, properly with people's questions. And um, not you can't say the same about all Formula One drivers. And so any you know, any journalist is grateful for any sportsman who is prepared to do all those things, as well as being, as you said, Ben, um, you know, one of the greatest racing drivers has ever walked the earth. Kimi must yeah, have been hard I, work. I know then. we sort of want to move on from, sorry, Paul, uh, we want to move on from, from Lewis Hamilton, um, the legend. I think, I don't know, I don't expect a response from you on this, uh, uh, Andrew. I think the FIA should move mountains to make sure he's back on the grid in March. Um, however, that might uh, transpire, Dan. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we, we the, the words from the FIA were, we'll find out in due course or coming days. It was <laughs> one we? of those two, wasn't it, I think, uh, about the, any changes, if any. It shouldn't be too long now, I don't think. Yeah, well, um, yeah, but it's, well, it's certainly interesting to hear, and I, I, we look forward to that. Um, let's uh, let's move on. Thinking back, one sort of final reflection, I guess, on, on your career, really, before we, we move on a little bit is, what was the moment for you? And it might have been uh, a particular piece being published. It might have been a moment in the paddock. Or what was the moment where you kind of reflected on yourself and just thought, this is cool, actually. This is really cool. Or do you get that a lot? Or or has it just happened once early on? Or did it happen last year? Like, what was the moment for you that really stood out as like, oh, actually, yeah, this is all right? 
I don't I don't think I've had a moment that I've thought this is cool okay. um, because this sounds sorry, I don't want don't mean to sound dreary <laughs> it, it is a job at the end of the day and you have to treat it as one yeah um, and believe me occasionally it really feels like one yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I really having said that of course I realize I'm incredibly privileged to do what I do and to fly around the world uh, to see Grand Prix and to talk to Formula One drivers and Formula One team bosses and all the rest of it, and uh, that is a and, and then to be able to write about it and communicate that to the public, it's a, it is a great privilege, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that I'm able to do that. Um, I think the biggest satisfaction comes from uh, the work, actually. Um, it's not about, oh, wasn't it cool to meet such and such? Because you can't really afford to think like that as a journalist because they're all, you know, your job is to be detached and professional around them. Um, and um, it's, and I get a buzz from the job. So um, if I'm chasing a story and I've, I know I've got it, but I need, I need more sources to be absolutely sure. You know, there's a, there's a halfway house when you're a journalist where you're sort of heading towards getting a story and you think, yeah, I know this is real, but I've got to stand it up properly before I can go public with it. And um, when you when you get that final sort of part of the chain, that's a massive buzz, or it is for me. Um, and then also there's the reward of feeling like you've written something good or even someone does people you don't often get told that by other people but very occasionally you might be lucky enough for someone to say that to you as well and I think you know there are those moments when you when you because sometimes things just flow out of you you know and um and uh there might be a moment that you read something back that you've written and think well, that's actually not bad. Did I really write that? <laughs> um, and um, it's the coffee talking. None of us yeah. have had that yet. None of us have had that yet. Um, you, I'm sure you will. Um, th- those are the, the the buzz moments for me. Is there, a, is there a particular um, article or piece that that stands out when you say that to us that you've looked back and read and thought that was good? Is there a particular one that you can think of? I'm pretty proud of the Lewis Hamilton long read that we did at the end of 2020. Um, okay. And uh, I got some very nice comments from some of the drivers about um, a piece I did after Antoine Hubert's death in Spa, in, Spa. in 2020. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's been a few things. I can think there's a few other things I can Yeah, think yeah. Of. Those okay. are the two most recent examples of things that I think, in hindsight, I'm most proud of. The, the Hamilton piece was a lot of work. It was 6,000 words long, um, a bit more. I mean, it was 7,000, something like that, almost a dissertation. That's a GCSE. Uh, in your world. <laughs> yeah. Um, a, bit more, a bit more than a GCSE, I think, Paul. And, uh, I don't yeah, know how many words. Um, it's more like a university project, 6,000. That's brilliant. Um, have you, uh, I, I want to ask on that, have you ever felt the heat delivering a story or got in trouble uh, for delivering a story true or, you know, whether, even if it was true, have you ever had that kind of like, I know this, my sources say this, uh, people are maybe uh, coming at me to, to stop me um, uh, printing it, should I say? Yes. I mean, that, that's part of the job. You get that, you get that a lot. Um, so, 
one thing I've written about before, which is probably the most famous one, was the Damon Hill getting dropped by Williams story in 1996. Um, uh, that was, um, I knew that was going to be big. And then when the when the magazine came out with it the morning that it did come out, a few things happened that made me realise it's going to be bigger than I thought. And then um, in terms of its impact, and then I thought I'd better wait it was this, the Thursday of the German Grand Prix weekend. I thought I'd better wait before I go and see Damon to explain why I wrote it. And um, when I walked into the Williams awning, as it was at the time, they, 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 all, they didn't have these big fancy motorhomes. They <laughs> yeah. buses with uh, three-meter awnings attached to them. And he was sitting there with his wife, Georgie, and his manager, Michael Breen. And I got over the threshold of the awning, and he was on the far side of it, so like a, a bus length away. And I'd literally taken one step, and he said, "Get out!" And you made yourself look very stupid. And um, so he didn't know he was, was getting one. dropped. No. Oh damn. No. Um, and then another one that was really uncomfortable was um, uh, the start of 2013. I wrote a story that said that Mercedes were going to get rid of Ross Braun. And I'd been working on it for weeks and weeks and weeks and um, had a couple of major main sources on it who were kind of teasing me with it almost. And they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't let, you know, they would just, there was, there was more to, they kept saying, I don't know, there was, it's hard to describe what was going on, but it was like, it sort of, it started as a kernel of an idea and it just, that, that, that kernel got bigger and bigger and bigger. And suddenly I realized, oh my God, <laughs> they're going to get rid of Braun. And um, and I finally nailed it and uh, wrote the story. And I think it went up mid-afternoon one day. And then I suddenly realized the next day I was going to Mercedes for a press conference with Ross Braun. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, me and about 10 other journalists in his office around a table. And um, obviously I've known him for a long time by then. Um, but that was a very uncomfortable um, uh, 45 minutes or whatever it was. And he was the most, he's normally completely unflappable. Um, and he was the most on edge. I mean, he kept it under control and was yeah. very calm on the surface, but he was very, he was the most on edge I've ever seen him. And I was just thinking, I can't believe I've found myself in this situation <laughs> again. Did they make your life difficult at the uh, security gate on the way in? Just like a full full search and no, they didn't actually. And uh, yeah, so anyway, there you go. There's a couple oh. of examples. There have been lots of others, believe me, but those are two that really spring to mind. Excellent. It sounds like um, fun, doesn't it? It sounds like just... a lot of fun. I mean, you said it was a job. I, I would have loved to have seen Damon Hill. Just that moment would have been a, just a little, <laughs> a little fly on the wall. I always thought I wanted to be at the building of the pyramids as a fly on the wall, but I actually think maybe in that three meter tent on the side of the Williams bus would have been a much <laughs> no, better place to be. The the problem is, Paul, you would have asked for his autograph, whereas Andrew can't. He's got to you know get his job done. I would have absolutely well, asked for his autograph. You know, the problem is that you're a you know you're a professional journalist and that's what you have to be. But at the same time, you're also a human being with empathy. And I liked Damon. You know, um, uh, he was he's one of the drivers who's was always most interesting to talk to. Sometimes you would back in the days in the nineties, you could you know you might get invited to the the team bus and just have a chat or a cup of tea. It doesn't happen so often anymore. 
And when you went to see Damon, you didn't know whether you were going to end up talking about understeer and oversteer or the meaning of life. He was that kind of person. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Um, so to see him that upset, I felt bad. You know, you, any human being with empathy would do. But and somehow you've got to live with that duality. How do you build back trust after an event like that? Is that something that you have to work on for a while or, or is it something that everyone sort of brushes off? It's part of the game and we move on to the next weekend or like with Ross Braun with Damon Hill did he need to then sort of recultivate a relationship or was there kind of like a heat at the moment understanding move on well there's obviously there was no problem with trust because yeah. the stories were right yeah okay yeah yeah so um that wasn't my problem um the uh if you get it wrong you know obviously that's Armageddon sure have you ever got it wrong you really don't want to um like have you ever often. had to change just like do you ever have to go back and go oh sorry I, and then does that ever happen um, i mean you're always going to get things things that it's always a, it's an imperfect trying to be trying to do stories is especially when they're not very public it's it's always an imperfect um thing because the, the information comes in drips and drabs and drip, drips and drabs, sorry. And um, so, and you're, you're kind of feeling your way a little bit. And so th- there's always going to be something that's perhaps not, isn't, you've got part of the story, but you haven't got another part of it, or it's, um, it's true at the time, but then it ends up not being true because something's changed subsequently. So you, you've always got to try really hard to, um, be sure of the information, you know, um, before you publish it. Um, and so, you, you know, because, you know, especially, I mean, this, this is true for any journalist, but the BBC has a, you know, a, a well-deserved um, global reputation for impeccable journalism and trustworthiness. And the, you, that responsibility weighs heavily on you. Um, so, you know, you take it seriously and you don't, you don't mess about. Yeah. Um, thank you, Andrew. I think what we might do is we've got some, uh, rapid fire questions, uh, very much in the vein of actually what you were just talking about, because yes, you've got to get everything right and you've got to manage those, um, uh, you know, those BBC reporting sort of, um, the way of working, um, but of course, it's a fast-paced environment, so you know, things things move fluidly. Um, so, in that vein, we've got some rapid-fire questions that hopefully none of them should put you on the spot or be too awkward. And I'm sure you wouldn't uh, let yourself fall for that anyway. That's not what we're trying to do. Um, but really, just a bit of light-hearted, just to end the show and, and bring us towards the end of this. So, I'm going to kick off. So, what's the most famous person in your phone book? Gosh, um, probably Damon Hill. That's, I mean, that's a great one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, listen, <laughs> one of the great Formula One drivers of all time. Um, yeah, TV personality now as as well, of course. He was yeah. all right. Um, wasn't he? <laughs> what's what's in your kit bag on race day? What are you carrying with you? Um, computer, um, dictaphone, um, earphones, um, notepad and pen, uh, passport. Formula One pass, or that's generally around my neck. Um, uh, and then 
extra paraphernalia like you know well, there might be things that everyone would have who has a computer with them you know screen wipes yeah. and this that and the other but those are the key things okay and um, what keeps you going we mentioned coffee um earlier on like what keeps you going is it fruit do you eat healthy do you you know is a hip flask you probably couldn't say if there's one but like what, what's <laughs> certainly what you, not a hip flask <laughs> what's certainly keeping not. you going throughout the week at the, you know the day because they're 12 hour days like you say is it is it just looking after yourself or is it you know coffee 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 you just take, yeah just look after yourself and just be aware that you know you've, you've you know, it's a four-day weekend, and at the end of it, the, the, this is you know, the end of it is when the work's most intense. Sure. So you can't afford to, you know, um, exhaust yourself on the first couple of days, um, and then um, when you're done, then you can breathe. You know? Yeah. So um, you you might not be able to answer this. So I'll, I'll, there's a second part which would make it might be a bit easy to answer. But which team or which boss? Dine, dines you the best who looks after you the most which team might is the most welcoming maybe you could speak to that broadly which team's more welcoming to a british journalist maybe um but to follow that up as slightly easier if you've got a new intern in the media paddock tomorrow where do you send them for coffee at <laughs> silverstone grand prix where do you send them who do you send them to uh, all the teams are, are helpful uh, it, i wouldn't I w- it would be wrong of me to pick one out sure um and um as in I don't know where would I send an intern for coffee again. I think um, I, I, they would because they were, as I said, the teams want to help the BBC as much as they can. Obviously, they're, they're not going to tell you something they don't want to tell you. But um, uh, I, I'm sure all ten of them would give our intern a coffee. <laughs> I would go. I'd be going to Williams because they they've got Lavazza, <laughs> haven't they, as a title sponsor. So um. they do do a good they do do a good coffee at Williams. There I'll you go. That, look, yeah. there you go. Cool. All right. always um, okay final two questions then and I'm I'm I'm, I'm totally borrowing uh, from another section of the BBC to ask you this question which is your, your desert island seasons if I will at which two seasons would you like to report on if you could only choose two to report on moving forward which two would they be so you're asking me which seasons from that has ha- that has yeah. already happened would yeah. I like to have been a reporter at? Uh, no, to to uh, only be able to report on those two again. Oh, again? Forward. Yeah. Oh gosh. I like the first one though. I like that first one, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. If there was a season, would you go back and, and report on on a, a Gilles Villeneuve season, perhaps, or, or go even further back? Well, I've always thought one of the most intre- one of the most fascinating seasons was 1982. Um, I think, but it was also a very, very tragic season. So I'm not really that sure I want to be going back to experience that firsthand and knowing everybody who subsequently died or had their legs smashed up or whatever it was that happened. Lots of bad things happened that year, but it was, you know, in terms of, you know, drama and intrigue and everything that that season was, was unbelievable. Um, so, to, but to go back to your question, the ones I've reported on, um, I mean, this last year, twenty twenty one, was just remarkable. Um, you know, that was one of the that was one of the greatest seasons ever, and it was it was um, it was it was just incredible to be to be witnessing that as closely as I was able to and be in the, be being pulled this way and that by the 
rows that were going on between Mercedes and Red Bull and, you know, and all the various shenanigans that went on uh, in that little tussle both on and off the track and you know because everything was involved you know not just the drivers the teams you know the stewards the officials still going on now isn't it um so yeah. you know you'd have to pick 2021 um 2012 was a really interesting season as well um um yeah that was a, that was a really good one um uh so but then there's 2007, Spygate. Spy <laughs> we should have asked this question right at the beginning and we could have just talked about F1 seasons. <laughs> we could have just yeah. talked about the season because obviously uh, Spygate 2007, but that was, uh, I think, Lewis Hamilton's first season. Uh, with Hamilton exactly. And Alonso yeah. finishing on equal points, one point behind the legendary Kimi Raikkonen. I mean, 2007 was unbelievable because I remember watching Lewis Hamilton's first race thinking, well, who is this guy? How good? How fast is this kid? Um, yeah, I'd actually, I'd actually uh, pick that as one of my favorite to watch, not right on, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so two of those three, but it's a tough one. That All right. Tough, yeah. tough call. <laughs> that, well, we'll let you have three. Why not? It's a hypothetical situation with no <laughs> rules. So three it is. Um, okay. Final question then. And, um, recently one of your um, BBC colleagues, not sports writers, but BBC presenter colleagues, Ross Atkins, dusted off his DJ skills to uh, do a sort of one night uh, thing. What's what's your hidden talent? What are you going to brush off? Uh, we, we spoke earlier about sport, so we can leave sport if you want to park that. But what, what's your hidden talent? Gosh, I'm not sure I have any hidden talents. I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not uh, I certainly couldn't do a drum and bass mix like Ross did. That was incredible. Um yeah, I don't know. Um, that's a, that's a really tricky one. Maybe um, maybe play the spoons as a support act for for Ross Atkin, maybe. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, the speed, the, the spoons. Wouldn't <laughs> There's the speed, a lot of dexterity involved. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we um, Andrew, to see spoons in your kit one. bag then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a secret one in the kit bag. Um, it's uh, I know. Uh, obviously, we're going to let you off, uh, get off, and get to the uh, PSG Real Madrid match uh, that is on this evening. Uh, who are you? Who are you supporting tonight? I don't mind. I'm just uh, neither do I. As a Liverpool yeah. fan, tomorrow is the big game. Um, but there's obviously a reason that you are uh, one of the leading sports writers in this country. Um, you've been really professional. Uh, I think we've really enjoyed that, Dan. Paul. Yeah, thank you, Andrew, for spending your time with us and choosing to join us and um, saying yes to being here. Um, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening and best of luck for the season ahead. And I hope that when you look back on it, maybe 2022 will be one of your desert, desert island seasons. Who knows going forward with all the new regulations? Let's hope so. Well, thank you for having me on and the best of luck to all of you with your careers. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of this show. And Ben, Paul, I think you'll agree. It was a lot of fun chatting to Andrew, wasn't it? Because, you know, as fans of Formula One, it it is nice and to hear those insights, isn't it? As much as he says, you know, it is his job and, you know, can't necessarily have those cool moments because it can interfere with his work. But, you know, from an outsider looking someone that's part of that traveling circus, he's got some cool stories, hasn't he? Like, Paul, what stood out for you? I love the Damon Hill stuff. Um, the thought of him sort of wandering into a tent like, hi, cup of tea. And then just being <laughs> just being sort of told to get out um, in no uncertain terms by 
at the time. What was he? Was he Formula One world champion at the time, or was he? That was the season after. I can't remember. But yeah, imagine walking in to Damon Hill and saying, "Hey, I hear you're out <laughs> of a job." Um, that must have been. I, I bet he walked out of there thinking, "I'm never working in this city again." I'll, you know, it's, it's funny. It's real it, funny. It was. It was clear to hear. You know, particularly towards the end there, as he reflected on some of the seasons that he has reported on. Just the the range of things he's covered in w- just one sport, not only one sport but one level of sport as well. Like Ben, what what about the interview stood out to you? Yeah, well, and that does stand out. That um, for me, the professionalism is is incredible, immense, I should say. And you say he's talked about all or written about, I should say, um, all manner of things from from the the terrible. Uh, he mentioned um, the the horrific uh, Hubert incident, um, all the way through to the absolutely incredible, brilliant highs of of world champions Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton, to name the Brits. Um, I think he needs to have that professional uh, attitude and, and look on the sport because especially coming up to the season, it's just relenting, never ending. We've got a, quad, a quadruple header coming up at some point. He's flying from destination to destination um, and he has to be focused and fit, healthy and uh, to deliver the quality content he does for the BBC. So it was brilliant insight. Um, and yeah, you know, making making Ross Braun sweat a little bit. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> yeah, that was a good story as well. That one stood out. I think... Um... We're going to wrap up there. So thank you so much for joining us for this, our first interview of season three. More to come. Uh, you've got to join me uh, with Simon back next week, along with Ben. Simon Simon We'll be sure to invite you back, Paul, once the Formula One season kicks off. And thank you, Paul, for joining us as well. It's always an absolute delight to have you on the show. Man, I love um, you but we will be back next week. Thank you. Uh, We will be back next week with um, some highlights from the Winter Olympics. Of course, they're still going on. They've been going on while we've had these two absolute monster opening shows to our season three. So thank you for joining us. Uh, So all that's left to say is I've been Dan. Who's doing it next? (laughs) Why would it be me? Why would it be me? You know what? I <laughs> I've been Ben. <laughs> I am you know always what, gonna be Paul. And I'm sorry for that swear. I apologize. Excellent. It's fine, it's fine. Until next last Wednesday of the week. Be kind. Bye bye.